As those baskets are going around, I'm going to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever made a bad trade or a bad deal that was so lopsided, that was so outrageous that you had to ask yourself, how could I have been so stupid? Okay, How could I have been so short-sighted? You know, the history is full of those kind of deals. I think the French are still kicking themselves, aren't they, for selling us a third of the North American continent for pennies, okay, an acre. Shame on the French, okay, for, for doing that. Good, are good. The Boston Red Sox, okay, um, sold the rights of a young player for $100,000 to the New York Yankees, a young player named George. And who would that be? Babe Ruth, okay? Didn't turn out so well for the Red Sox, okay? But quite possibly, quite possibly, the worst exchange in human history was done by a man named Stephen. See, Stephen had helped develop a personal computer for a fledgling technology company that was meeting in, the, in a garage. And he was, he was partners with these two other guys. But he did not like the way the company was going and didn't believe it had a strong future. So he sold his share in this little fledgling company for how much? $800. Of course, the computer that he developed, we now know as the Macintosh, and the company that he had helped found and sold for his share for $800 was, of course, what? Apple, now valued at $118 billion, with revenues of $233 billion a year. I hope you bought your Apple stock at the right time, okay? That was a bad exchange, don't you think? And if you want to see, see Stephen Wozniak now, and he is the, the man who sold his stock, you can actually ride Spaceship Earth at Epcot, and he's one of the, the animatronic displays in that. Anyway, just, just so you know, okay? Now, in our text this morning, um, we, Paul is going to unpack for us another exchange, okay? Now, this is not an economic or a business transaction. This is, in fact, a relational exchange initiated and offered to us by God himself. And Luther, Martin Luther called this the great exchange. And we are calling it, this is the title this morning, the greatest exchange. And we are just looking at one verse this morning. Can you handle that for Oaks? One verse. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. You may say, why, why just one verse? And let me tell the guests, God, we've been preaching through 2 Corinthians. And it's our practice here at Four Oaks to preach through books of the Bible and we do that by taking chunks of those books and hope, hopefully, Lord willing, to make the point of the message the point of the passage. So in other words, we just don't read a verse and say, we say whatever we want to say and make the verse say what we want it to say. We, we think this is a discipline that God blesses us by, by working through his words systematically. And so we don't often just camp out on one single verse, but I think as you'll see, this is a particularly meaningful, significant verse. In fact, I would say these are 24 words that I think can change your life and give you hope. And, and that's not my testimony. That's the testimony of Paul. So let's look at that verse together. Just one verse. 
2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord, one verse in 30 minutes here will never do its service. Lord, that's what's awesome. Your word, we never get past your word. Lord, we never grow past it. We never mature beyond it. Lord, your word is infinite and it is true. And it contains the words of life that continue to impact us and grow us and change us and convict us. And so we're praying that you would take these 24 little words and that you would use them in a powerful, significant way in our lives. And Lord, we pray that now in your name. Amen. You've all heard of, of Roland Stewart, right? Steve, have you heard of Roland Stewart? No, I hadn't either. Okay, but no. He, you might know him better as AKA the rainbow wig man. Do you remember that guy? He's the guy, he, there we go. He's the guy that went around to sporting events in the 1980s. Does this ring a bell now, Steve? Okay, good. He knows the shirt. Okay. Steve's got a pick on this sermon. Anyway, he has a rainbow wig. He's hold, he would hold up a sign or, or wear a shirt that clearly says what? John 3.16. And in the 80s, it, you, could not, you could not watch an event on TV hardly and not see this guy. Please remove him. Okay, somewhere, okay, in the background, right, he would show up at the Olympics, the World Cup, NFL playoff games, the Indy 500. He even made it somehow into the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Di. And so what he would do, he would take his little portable TV. Um, this is back in the 80s, so you know what is it? portable TV. I don't as big as this thing. I don't know what it was. Anyway, it was battery operated, and he would and he would look online or he would look, watch the channel and see where the cameras were strategically located, and he would position himself strategically. And so this one verse in the Bible, John 3:16, sort of became culturally ubiquitous. Everyone recognized this guy. Everyone recognized this verse. It became such a part of our cultural, you know, language and experience that even people who didn't believe in Jesus, even people who have never gone to church could probably recite John 3.16. And it's probably true of you. I learned it in the King James Version, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only, not one and only, but what? only begotten son, okay, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And if you are a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and people ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you become a Christian? This might very well be the one verse that you recite because it's so simple. It's so straightforward, right? God loved me. He sent his son to die for me. He has forgiven my sins. He's given me eternal life. Now, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, which we've been studying, has been saying basically the same thing. Okay, So uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you have your Bibles, you can just look. I'll just mention a few of these verses briefly. In verse 15, Paul reminds us Jesus died. In verse 17, Paul says, you're now a new creation in Christ. Verse 18, God has reconciled us to himself. Verse 19, God does not count our trespasses or sins against us. 
Now, for many Christians, and this might even be true of you, that as far as they, you know, John 3.16 is as far as many people go in terms of understanding how God saves them. Because it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. And, and you might even be, anticipate what's coming and say, Pastor, don't confuse me with any of that complex theological mumbo-jumbo that theologians discuss and write about and debate about in the ivory tower. Just, I just need the simple gospel message. And on one hand, I would say that's absolutely true. However, however, Paul has something more to say about this. He's got something more to say to the church in Corinth. He's got something more to say to us about how specifically God saves us. See, because Paul could have stopped right there in verse 20. Jesus died, sins forgiven, reconciled to God in the story, but he doesn't here. And so in verse 21, Paul sort of peels back the theological onion, so to speak, and gives us the closest view possible of the heart of the gospel. He gives us the closest view possible of how you are saved and how I am saved. He gives us the closest view possible of my salvation and of your salvation. Now let me tell you, before we unpack this, why this is important. Okay, Let, let, me, let me try to contextualize and make this relevant for us. Husbands, let me say this. What, what is the day today? January what? 17th? Okay, which means if you haven't started planning Valentine's Day, you're already way behind. Okay, let, let, let me assure you. Never too early okay, to make those reservations at the melting pot before they book up. Actually, if you're going to try to do that, you're too late. Okay, because I tried and I couldn't do it. Okay, so let's just say that, that this year... I'm going to celebrate Valentine's Day. I want to honor Susan by, by taking her to dinner and giving her a card, okay? which is a nice start, okay? I might add. Okay? And in the card, all I say is, dear Susan, you're a great wife, a great mom, you're the best, and I love you. Okay? Now, okay, no, women, don't be too harsh. Okay? It's a start, right? Okay? Um, d- does that honor my wife? And on one hand, we say yes. I mean, we went out to dinner and gave her a card, and I actually thought to write a card and those sort of things. But, but how much more honoring would it be to your wives, gentlemen, okay, if you said a little bit more, something more specific, something more meaningful, like, sweetheart, you're the most beautiful wife in the world. Hey, Steve, are you taking notes? Okay, I just want to make sure. Okay, okay. You are sweet. You are kind. You are amazing. You get up every morning at 5.40 and iron the kids' clothes and fix lunches and pack people up and you take kids to the ER and you're my best friend and I want to be with you and I want to hang out with you and, and here's a gift to celebrate that. Now, how much more honoring would that be, right? Much more honoring because it's specific, right? And it's real, Because just saying I love you over and over again without connecting it with the meat or the substance of that love, what happens? What happens, ladies? Love begins to lose its luster, doesn't it? 
it, it begins to lose its meaning over time. Now, I would submit to you, that's the same thing that can happen with your salvation and my salvation, okay? An ignorance of how a thing works or happens results in inevitable devaluing of that thing itself over time. Layman's terms, our salvation, if we don't know how it works, if we don't know really what God did for us, it loses its luster. It loses its meaning. And here's what happens experientially for us. Here's what happens experientially for me. My soul begins to shrivel. I grow cold and disinterested and have a lack of joy and my affections for God are on the wane. And and I have to wonder, why am I dry? Why am I burned out? Why am I unmotivated? Ah, I've forgotten how great and amazing this salvation truly is. You see, folks, this morning, as we unpack this verse, Paul wants to do something here. Apostle Paul. He wants to expand your joy. He wants to expand your heart. He wants to give you a, a, a newness of life, a wellspring of joy and of thankfulness by helping you understand, maybe for the first time, or maybe just to be reminded, the nature of this greatest of all exchanges. And there's, there's three little elements that we're going to look at here about what Paul says in this verse. We're going to look at the motive and the means and the mechanism. The motive, the means, and the mechanism. And so let's, let's dive in. The motive. Right off the bat, Paul tells us this. He says, for our sake, he, now it's important to get the pronouns right here, he refers to God. Okay? So for our sake, that's us, for our sake, he, meaning God, made. Now, let me ask you something, ladies. Can you really measure love? Ladies, can you measure love? No, but yes. Okay? So no, but yes. See, love is measured by the actions it produces. So if, if you can just let me indulge in this Valentine's Day motif one more time, right? Susan and I had, a, had some friends in Jackson, Mississippi. And, and on Valentine's Day, the wife wrote a card and, and put her husband's, on the, husband's name on it and put it on the counter okay, for her husband to read that night when he came home from work. And so he comes home from work, and as they get ready to go to bed, the wife realizes he hasn't read the card. Okay, not, uh, husband's not good. Okay, had not read the card. So they get up the next morning. They're having breakfast, and he goes off to work, and she realizes he still hasn't read the card. Okay, wives, what would you do? This wife decided, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to see how long it takes him to read this card. Okay, she, this this lady was giving the rope to this man to hang himself. Okay. <laughs> Two weeks, two weeks, oh yes, okay? Now let me ask you again, ladies, is it possible to measure love? Yes, yes it is. His life was measuring, and let me tell you, men, he was coming up way short, okay? So when this text says, for our sake, God offered up his own son and made him, in fact, a sin sacrifice, and we'll unpack that in a minute, for us, we can 
in clear conscience say that God's love has produced the greatest sacrifice humanly that we can understand possible. We can measure God's love in this passage. And and parents, you know this. There's nothing, and I'm looking around the room, and I know this is true for some of you, nothing is more heart-wrenching than losing a child, is it not? Nothing is more personally, emotionally devastating. You know, right now in Jackson, Tennessee, where Susan's family lives, her parents are involved in Fellowship Bible Church, and there is a family, you might have even seen this on Fox News or somewhere, there's a family in that church whose two-year-old boy even now has gone missing. With, with grandma walking around on their farm, there's a four-year-old girl, she's a, grandma's attending to her, there's the two-year-old boy, and literally, just like this, the grandma looks up and he's gone and they cannot find him. That was 72 hours ago. And so pray for that family, by the way, okay? But, but think about how, how gut-wrenching that is. And now, now consider something. God didn't lose his son. God gave up his son willingly. And, and, and here's what makes God's love and care for us even more astounding. Guys, it's one thing to write Valentine's Day cards and take out to dinner someone you love and someone you like being with. It's quite another thing to love someone who doesn't want anything to do with you. And it's something altogether worldview shattering that, that you would give up your own child for someone who hates your guts. But in fact, I'm not stretching the analogy That is precisely what God does here. For our sake. And and Paul says that because it's a reminder, we are in a precarious position. We, in our natural state, and it's not politically correct to say this, are enemies of God. Um, God represents everything that is holy and right and true, and in our natural state, we don't want anything to do with God. Oh, we might go to church. And we might be religious, some of us, but in our natural self, we are hostile to the things of God. We, we have committed cosmic treason. We, we are on a one-way path to live our lives and to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And, and in our natural state, we want nothing to do with God. Yet Paul says, the heart of God is moved by our precarious state. And he says, for, personalize this, for your sake, for my sake, for our sake, God, he. God took all the initiative. And what's astounding about this, he doesn't doesn't seek to keep us at arm's length. God initiates movement toward us. I won't tell you which child because it, it, it might embarrass them and get them kicked off Instagram okay, or social media. But, but one of our kids, when they were 12 months old, 18 months old, I can't remember exactly, um, was taking a, a nap in one of the rooms and, and woke up in the middle of the nap way too long, way sooner than, than I was going to say he or she, it, okay, about an it, okay? It woke up way too soon in the nap and gave that cry. And parents, you know that cry, right? Like, 
uh-oh, something is really wrong in there, okay? I don't know if I want to go in there, but I think I should, okay, as their parent. So Susan was doing something. So I went in there, and, and it, okay, no, I'll give you a hint. She, okay, she, that narrows it down to three. She was, had this most helpless look on her face. She had one of those, shall we say, parents, accidents, okay, in the middle of her nap and Let's just say not to go too far, but this accident was all over her. Do you know what I'm saying? You kind of get the picture, okay? And it was terrible, okay? Head to toe, smelled awful everywhere. And I remember she looked at me, and I looked at her, and, and she's totally helpless, okay? Not one thing she can do to change herself, clean herself, get herself out of the crib. She would still be there, okay, maybe, okay? as a teenager or something, okay, I guess. No, no, no. Well, what, what, what's your impulse as a parent? Okay, as you hold your breath, hold your nose, you dive, no, no, no. Not a moment's hesitation, okay? Not a moment's hesitation. Her need drew me towards her. I was drawn and compelled immediately to do whatever I needed to do. So I just kind of like plowed in there and began to clean and wipe and deodorize and all those things. If, but I knew this. If I didn't make the first move, she could do nothing. And that's what Paul is saying here. This is what Paul means when he says, for our sake, God made. Guys, God made the first move. See, you know, we can do nothing to reconcile ourselves to God. In the previous verse, in verse 20, 19 and 20, when Paul says be reconciled to God, that's in the passive. It doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, Christian or person, reconcile yourself to God. He doesn't say that. He says be reconciled, which this is what it means. Receive. Receive God's offer of reconciliation. See, when God is aggrieved, he is the only one who can make that right. He is the only one who can initiate salvation. And so Paul wants us, wants us to be reminded, wants to remind you, wants to remind me, for our sake, God made. Second point, how does that happen? Okay, and this is the heart of the verse. Okay? How exactly does God reconcile or bring together you and me to him, and, there, and there's, and there's two, two parts to this, okay? God made him who knew no sin to be sin. That's the first part. The second part, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And we want to unpack both of those. What does that mean? This is the heart of the gospel. It is the heart of this verse. So let's look at God made him, and him meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Now, guys, as a, as a culture... We are really in tune, are we not, to this idea of fairness or justice. You know, fairness was once defined as everyone has equal opportunity to do something, right? That's fair. But fairness, the definition culturally has changed now, right? Because now fairness is defined as everyone gets an equal outcome, okay? Not an equal shot, but an equal outcome. So Little League Sports... Everyone gets a chance to participate, now has become what? Everyone wins, and what? Gets a trophy. And if my child doesn't get a trophy, I'm going to sue somebody, right? Okay? School. You see it in school. 
everyone has a chance for an education now has become everyone should get the same grades just for trying, okay? A little feel-good, happy face sticker thing, okay, for everybody. Social policy, try to step on some toes here, right? Everyone gets a chance to get a job has now become everyone is paid the same no matter what, whether you work or not, okay? And we see the same thing in religion. And this is why Christianity is particularly under attack culturally. It just isn't fair that Christians would say that Jesus is the only way to God. That just doesn't seem fair. Now, as we kind of think about that cultural milieu, that milieu that we we sort of orb in, Paul is going to describe for us, he's going to say, you know, if you you think your life is unfair, if if you think things are unfair, I'm going, to, I'm going to describe to you the greatest injustice in the history of the universe. And here it is. Paul says, God took Jesus who was sinless. Okay? And then it says, it made him sin, even though he knew no sin. Now, when it says that Jesus knew no sin, okay, the word comes from the, the Greek, the Hebrew, Yada, it just means no, there's no and there's knowing. Paul's using no here, knew no sin, meaning knowledge gained by personal participation, okay? Having a personal experience with something, okay? Do you understand what I mean by there's no and then there's knowing? So, so you guys know this. I was going to say it's a confession, but it's not even a confession because you know it's true. We, 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 we like reality shows in our house, okay? We have 89 TVs to make sure we don't ever miss it. Anyway, no right. We like reality shows, okay? We, we know all about them, okay? We can tell you about facts and characters and comings and goings and all those sorts of things. We know, right, about reality shows. No, we don't, Okay? There's, there's actually a former Four Oaks-er. I'm trying to see if her parents are here. Okay, former Four Oaks-er, Rachel Schaefer, daughter of Stephen Roseanne. Are Stephen Roseanne here? Okay, they're, they're doing autographs out in the lobby. After. Anyway, um, Rachel, used to be in our youth group, is starring currently tonight on the Food Network, Worst Cooks in America. Anybody watch this show? Okay, she's on it, okay? Now, I'm not saying anything about her cooking ability but she is on the show, The Worst Cooks in America, okay? We know in the Gilbert household a lot about reality shows, okay? But guess what? Rachel, what? She knows reality shows because she personally participates. She's had a personal experience. This is what Paul means when he says Jesus knew no sin. It doesn't mean he didn't have an awareness or that wasn't on his radar, He just simply means this. As a man, Jesus was perfect in every way. He did not participate in sin one time. I want you to think about that. He had not one personal experience or participation in sin, neither outwardly in act or inwardly in attitude. And that is the testimony of Scripture, by the way. Just one verse, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet what? Without sin. Okay? And so here, here is the injustice. 
Okay, we often, guys, we love to put God in the dock or, in, or, or on trial, okay? When bad things happen, when terrible things go down, when children are lost, when natural disaster strikes, we love to put God on trial and say, what about this, God? This is, this is, this is unjust. This is unfair. Paul says, here's the injustice. Let me tell you about the greatest injustice in the history of mankind. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. Two things to note about that. First, this, this idea of made, it means to cause or to appoint with divine authority, which means that God did not merely allow Jesus to die and then use it for good. In fact, he caused it. He planned it from before the foundations of the world, Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up, here it comes, according to the definite what? Plan. And foreknowledge of God. Second thing, when God made him to be sin, what we don't mean is that he, he didn't make Jesus commit sin or make him sinful. Here's what it means. It treated Jesus as if he were the chief of sinners. And not just any sinner or any sins. God treated Jesus as if he were the eternal sinner. As if he had committed every act of every sin of every person in the history of the world who would trust in him past, present, and future, every, not just, not just one person's sin, okay? every person who would trust in Jesus, their sins, every one of your sins, every one of my sins, the worst of sins, murder, adultery, lust, gossip. It was the greatest injustice in the history of the universe. God treated Jesus as if he were all those things. And the way he did it is that he poured out his infinite wrath on Jesus on that cross. Galatians 3.13 says that Jesus became a curse for us. God cursed him. Can I put that in our vernacular? Okay, parents, you can explain this to your kids when you go home today, okay? God damned his son. You know why it's so bad to damn someone? To say, God, damn you? Because we don't know what we're saying when we say that. We have no idea what we are asking God to do. We are literally wishing the eternal worst for someone. Infant wrath from an all-powerful God, but make no mistake, that is what happened to Jesus on our behalf. He who knew no sin, God made him. God treated him as if he were the supreme sinner in the history of the universe. You know, many of you probably 11, 12 years ago saw Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of Christ. And make no mistake, a gripping movie, which probably gives the clearest picture of the physical sufferings of Jesus Christ that I've seen, but here's a danger, okay? Here's a danger 
about movies that depict Jesus. Guys, there's simply no way to capture the heart of what Jesus suffered on the cross. To have the unmediated wrath of God poured out on his soul for every single person who would know him. Guys, we can't conceive it. If you and I were to be exposed to that kind of unmediated wrath, we would beg God to just destroy us right there. We, we, would, we would disintegrate. We would come unglued. We would be like Isaiah. He, said, he wasn't even being judged. He said, I'm undone here. I am totally undone. And it should have happened for you. And it should have happened for me eternally. Because that is why hell is so awful. And that is why we must not shy away from talking about it. That's why, parents, we have to plead to our children, flee from the coming wrath. But Jesus reconciled us to God by becoming sin for us. But something else happened. It's just half the story. Paul goes on to say, He who knew no sin was made sin, so what? Look at the text. That we might become the righteousness of God. You know, Luther called this the great exchange because there is a swap here. As Jesus becomes sin, and that's, that's half the good news because you don't have to be judged in your sin, but Jesus goes, God goes way beyond that. He says, there's going to be a swap here. Jesus is going to take your sin and you are going to take his righteousness. And theologians call this double imputation. And let me just explain what that means. Guys, everything that was true about Christ in this passage in the negative, all the judgment he received, the wrath he received, is now true about us in the positive. Let me explain. Was, was Jesus sinful? Was he sinful? No way. But God treats him as if he is. Now here's a question. Are you righteous today? Experientially righteous. Okay, when's the last time you sinned? When's the last time? Last week? This morning? On the way over here? During this sermon? Okay, I don't know. Probably. Don't, don't confess it. I've sinned, I think, probably. Okay? No way we're righteous. But here's the gospel. God, because of Jesus, God treats us as if we were. Everything that is true of Christ, sinless perfection, the sonship, his righteousness, his perfection, his truth, is now true for you. Even though experientially it is not true. Okay? And the way he does this is he takes the righteousness of Christ and he credits it to your account. You didn't, it's not a loan. Okay? It's a deposit and it does not go away. As a, a few number, number of years ago, um, the Gilbert family had a, 
We had some unexpected household expenses. And aren't those always fun? And, and, and we realized, you know what, we're, we're probably going to have to take, you know, our savings account can't handle this right now. We're probably going to have to take out a personal loan to pay for this particular thing. And so when, when my parents found out that, that we were going to have to do that, you know, my dad said, look, there's no need to take out a personal loan and pay an interest rate. Let us be the banker. We'll, we'll loan you the money interest-free, okay? So I had to think about that how long? 0.2 seconds, okay? Yes, okay, I'll take you up on that offer. And then orbs back around, and my dad said, you know, let's don't make that a loan. Let's make that a gift, okay? Now, the contractor who did the work on our house could care less whose money that was, okay? What did they want? A big, fat check. Guys, God requires righteousness, perfect righteousness. In order for us to have a relationship, we have to be righteous in his sight. And guess what? We don't have it. And there's only one person who does, and that is Jesus. And so when Jesus stands before us and offers up his righteousness to God on our behalf, God looks at you and me and says, not only not guilty, sin's forgiven. He said, I accept you as righteous in my sight. Give me the robe. Give me the crown. You're in my presence. You are my son or you are my daughter. Guys, the incredible thing about this, okay, incredible thing is about this, this totally changes the way that we live, does it not? when you understand the righteousness of God or the righteousness of Christ on your account. Because when you struggle with sin, because understand, we're righteous in God's sight. God still calls us to be holy. God still calls us to grow. But if you don't understand imputed righteousness, you won't grow as God has called you to be because oftentimes this is what we do. We will sin and be unrighteous and many of us feel like this has taken me back to ground zero. And now I've got to begin to work my way back to God. I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. You know you're saved by grace, but it feels like you're saved by what you do. Christian, when you sin, yes, your communion and your fellowship with God is disrupted, Just like in a marriage, if you have a fight with your spouse, your relationship is disrupted. But Christian, when you sin, your status with God does not change. And if I could go around and to myself and to you and to pound that into our heads and say, when you sin, Christian, your status does not change. You are righteous in God's sight. I I think this would cure us of so many anxieties. It would cure us from so many phobias. It would cure us from so many struggles. Because half the time, we are wallowing around in the guilt of sins committed, thinking that it has changed our status with God. And God says, no, it hasn't. Yes, draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. Yes, let's reestablish communion. Yes, confess your sins. But your status has not changed. And we may say, That doesn't sound particularly fair 
and it's not. You know what God calls that? He calls it grace. And you've got to get grace to get the gospel. It's the most unfair exchange in the history of the universe. Oh, if we could understand it. Oh, if we could apply it to our souls. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need this just as much as the non-believer. Be reconciled to God. One last piece and we're done. Mechanism. Take one, two minutes. Here's the question as we wind up our time this morning in this text. How is this exchange activated? How does this exchange become true for you? Because let me say this. It's possible, it's very possible, to know everything about imputation, to know everything about the great exchange, to have read all of Martin Luther's works on this verse, to understand everything about righteousness and sin and God's initiative and reconciliation, but still be lost. And still be lost. It's true for a lot of religious people. Very um, concerning for them because they might even be deceived. There's only one way. And look back at the verse, just kind of tucked in there. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of, of God. And there's a little phrase in there, so that in him, in him. Folks, are you in him this morning? Have you been joined to Jesus Christ through faith? Be reconciled to God. Receive God's offer of mercy and forgiveness and imputation and righteousness and sins paid for. Receive it. It's a gift. It's the grace of God because Jesus has been made sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God.